0: Conversations with Matt Dwyer, I'm Matt Dwyer. If you uh, like my theme music there, that is a band called Les Blanks. You can go to lesblanks.com and check out more of their stuff. Uh, They're a really great band. Uh, If you haven't listened to Conversations with Matt Dwyer before, I would like to thank you from the bottom of my heart for... And I said that kind of facetiously, but I meant it. Uh, It means a great deal to me when people take out the time to listen to my show. Uh, If you haven't listened to it before, it is what the title there implies. It's a conversation with me, and uh, I often am fortunate enough to talk to somebody who's uh, a lot smarter, more gifted, talented, uh, who's had a far more interesting life, and they they slum it and talk to me for an hour. And uh, today's episode is uh, with the great Wayne Kramer, Uh, who is, uh, as you probably know, one of the founding members of the MC5. He's a composer. He has a new album coming out April 19th called Lexington, which we discuss, among a lot of other things. Um, Also, we discuss prison reform, which is a passionate subject for Mr. Wayne Kramer, and we forgot to plug, or probably this is my fault, his organization uh, that he founded with Billy Bragg called Jail Guitar Doors, Uh, They go into prisons and they teach uh, these uh, citizens of the prison uh, music and how to play and write songs. And it's as a means of uh, reform, which we don't have much of anymore in our prison system. Uh, So please check out geoguitardoors.org. Also, while I'm plugging websites, I actually have a new website. I'm not sure if it's officially up. It is up, but themattdwyer.com so you can go and check out what I'm doing and uh, shows I have coming up uh, and there's links to this show blah 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 check it out I'd appreciate it Uh, let's get on to the conversation with Wayne Kramer remember April 19th Lexington the album comes out it's really great and jailguitardoors.org here's a conversation I have with Mr. Wayne Kramer you again, Mr. Kramer.
1: You're welcome, Mr. Dryer.
0: I was so nervous the first time we did this.
1: Well, I, I hope you're even more nervous and terrified now. Uh,
0: you know. Because this you're...
1: could all go very badly.
0: You're going to, yes. If people just hear a lot of banging and crashing, you know I'm getting my ass kicked by a guitar legend. <laughs> um, I, I, I said this before we started recording, but the album is incredible. I really loved it. I actually was listening to it again this morning. Um, is there, it's a free jazz album. Is that kind of, is that the first time you've recorded a free jazz album? I know a lot of your other stuff has veered into jazz, but not.
1: Well, yeah, it's the first, you know, proper full length effort. Um, but you know, the truth is I'm not playing anything new there. This is music, uh, played in a way that I've been playing it as long as I've been a professional musician since I was first exposed to free jazz in the late 60s, 67, when I first discovered Albert Eiler and John Coltrane and Sun Ra and Cecil Taylor.
0: It didn't Am I mistaken in saying that some, even like some of the guitar playing within MC5 was jazz-based?
1: Absolutely, but not, not jazz in the, in the traditional sense of bebop. Because my background is really in rock guitar, Chuck Berry. And and I was uh, influenced by the Ventures and, and early rock guitar. And then with the British first wave, uh, the Beatles and the Stones. And then there was this guitar player um, in, in one of the second wave bands called the Yardbirds. And his name was Jeff Beck. And I was really enamored with his guitar playing. And he helped me find a way that what I was hearing in the free jazz thing could be achieved with the electric guitar, where the jazz guys, although they had uh, superior technical ability, um, better training, better facility on their instruments than me as a rock player, but still we were both approaching this idea of a new way to play music and a new way to hear music that wasn't necessarily tied to, um, orthodoxy, (laughs) you know, beats and chord changes and melodies that there was a way, I mean, you had, you have to know what beats and chord changes and melodies are. You have to know the rules to break (laughs) the rules. (laughs) So once I, once I got to the point where I could play my most furious Chuck Berry solo as fast as I could, where do I go from there? Same as with a jazz tenor, Albert Eiler. Once he can play, you know, giant steps, then where where do you go from there? Well, you you got to start moving outward into um, what we like to think of as a more pure sonic dimension. <laughs> and... Um, so you know, this is stuff I've been interested in. Every generation's looking for their own voice, their own sound, and I, and I found the direction for the future for me and my band, the MC Five, when we were kids, in what the free jazz guys were doing. We we saw that as the, you know, the the uh, the signpost said, go this way. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what makes because I I'm a big jazz fan, but I don't I, I'm not a musician so I don't understand its complexities as, as as you do. What is the and what is the difference between like say free jazz and what I think most people because it seems like most mainstream America seems sort of stuck in bebop and like that era. Yeah. What is the drastic difference?
1: Well, bebop emerged out of out of the big band era. And uh, you know, this was swing music designed for dancing. And with the coming of radio and television, the people stopped going out dancing, and the big bands weren't viable anymore. So the smaller combo, jazz combos emerged. And, and through a couple of key players, Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, um, uh, this, this kind of new approach to jazz emerged that was operating on a on a more advanced level. Uh, technically these musicians Parker Gillespie and their crew Thelonious Monk could play at a velocity faster than most people could play. <laughs> they could play harmonically in more complex ways instead of working in major chords and and major uh, chord harmony, seventh chords. They were going out into ninth chords and twelfth chords and thirteenth chords, and really expand, putting chords, uh, superimposing chords on top of chords, to find new ways to approach melody. But it was all built on um, the tunes, the uh, mostly Broadway uh, show tunes, what we call standards, the Gershwin, Cole Porter. Well that had a healthy run for a long time but musicians are like all artists are you know relentlessly pushing forward and trying to find a new way to express themselves and a, a group of musicians kind of, kind of happened all around the world at the same time started to see you could go a little further so Coltrane in particular Um, learned everything there was about chords, did everything he could possibly do with melody and chord changes, and finally started to come to the conclusion that he needed to let chords go and, and let melody go and see where the horn would lead him, where, where playing would lead him. And, and, you know, he would play for hours and hours on end. His solos would be 45 minutes and guys would say, Drain, man, why you got, why you got to play so long? Well, sometimes it just takes that long. <laughs> I'm looking for it, you know, I'm trying to find it. So it all this, you know, appealed to me as a young man because I'm looking for my own identity. I'm looking for who am I in the world of music and, you know, what things matter to me. And the fact that these guys were pushing orthodoxy into new a new realm was very appealing to me. It it alienated a lot of a lot of jazz fans. They thought it was noise and and uh and uh, a joke, you know, or offensive. And of course all those things appealed to me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, didn't even like a, did a lot of traditional jazz guys I I mean, did they embrace Ornette Coleman or didn't didn't he kind of like
1: Ornette was one of the one of the the uh, prime leaders of the free jazz movement. 'Cause he approached it like like um, you know, Cezanne or or Picasso approached painting, you know, they took okay, you got your reality <laughs> oh, Let's take that reality and put it askew, you know, let's turn it sideways, let's look at reality from the from a different angle. And that's what the musicians started to do and I like that
0: <laughs> when you when you used when you say like you were you're searching for yourself as an artist is there also sort of a with a lot of jazz guys there's sort of also a spiritual quest, or like Coltrane sort of had a lot of spiritual elements to his music is that with within
1: well you know I guess that train talked about that a lot, and some of the some of the guys have 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 put it into um you know, use those kind of words, spiritual and, and cosmic and, uh, I don't know, I guess you, you, you know, you struggle for for new definitions of, of things. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, it's funny because I always thought that I was a spiritual guy because I liked John Coltrane. And he wrote songs and he called his songs by spiritual names, you know. I didn't actually know anything about spirituality whatsoever, (laughs) but I thought I did because I like train, you know? (laughs) So why
0: do you think people are less uh, likely to jump on board with like things like free jazz? And I'm talking about people who buy their CDs at Starbucks, I guess. Mm -hmm. But but, I mean, it seems like, I I don't know. It's always perplexing to me that people aren't, uh, especially, I guess more in America because in Europe, people go nuts for the shit still like that's true ken yeah. Vandermark's huge over there
1: yeah he's and he's terrific um well part of it is exposure you know that that we never get to hear it here it's it doesn't get played on the radio what we get is smooth jazz which is horrible <laughs> horrible stuff
0: do we blame Chuck Mangione for that? It's so
1: no, I no. I tell you, what, I blame I blame uh, I blame Miles Davis and the Grateful Dead for that.
0: Wow, what what it, when Miles went kind of? Uh...
1: No, well, here's what. This is one of Wayne's crackpot analysis is here, <laughs> and it may take a minute. There's, there's a little background to it. Miles, when when in the in the seventies late 60s and early 70s, Miles discovered that he could play for more people opening for the Grateful Dead than he could play five shows a night at the Village Vanguard. One Grateful Dead concert, he could play for 5,000 kids and he could play for, you know, 80 people and a set at the Vanguard or however many people fit in there. I don't know, 100 people in the club, jazz club. So he said, you know, Miles is no fool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. let's do this. Let me do the rock thing, you know. So he opens for the d- dead and he hears the dead and he thinks that's rock. Oops. Terrible mistake.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: I'm not a, d- a dead aficionado. I am not either. Um, but he thought that was rock. So he thought that, you know. What it was was this kind of meandering rhythm section that kind of limped along, and uh, they played these tunes, and and, you know, and Miles is Miles was a genius, and 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 so that influenced him, and it influenced a whole generation of musicians. And out came, uh, you know, Bitches Brew, and and Jack Johnson, and and the good news in all this was uh, Ma Vishnu John McLaughlin, because John McLaughlin really was pushing the music forward. He was the guy that really lit a fire under Miles Davis and brought Miles up up to speed on what was really going on. But the and then you know he got Michael Henderson, the Motown bass player in there and and, and had a few other guys that were were pushing it in the right direction, but still it 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 didn't hit with the with the intensity that a Jimi Hendrix was playing at if I if I dare to say, the MC5 was playing at. We had a more visceral, high-energy approach to how jazz and rock could actually merge into a new music form. Unfortunately, what happened was called fusion, where nothing ever really fused. <laughs> <laughs> the rock guys couldn't play well enough to play jazz, and the jazz guys couldn't rock. And they couldn't find that, that middle ground. So you ended up with Chick Corea and Stanley Clark and, and all this kind of. So everyone's showing off their technical, uh, skills. And I don't know. I just, none of it, none of it moved me. Emotionally, sexually, rhythmically, intellectually, I just found it all really boring. And so that influenced the whole next generation of musicians. And t- to return back to where we started, we ended up with smooth jazz, <laughs> which is the worst. So, so, so that's one reason. Another reason is. You know, that it it doesn't get exposed and, you know, we get retro bebop on the radio. But I think there's a larger reason. And the larger reason is that what we do with music and our movies and our books and our television, for the most part today in, in our culture, is we um, distract people. We am, amuse them ever so slightly.
0: <laughs> I, I'm in total agreement.
1: We don't, you know, and that's not art's job. Art's job is to make you feel something, is to carry a message, to make you think about things, to help you understand how you live in the, how do you get along in the world? You know, when those those hunter-gatherers painted those antelopes, chased the painting of Chasing the Antelope that day on the cave wall, they're telling you their story. That was an important story to them. That was like, check me out, man. I chased that fucking antelope, man. I slaughtered his ass. We ate for weeks. We're rocking. We have more babies. We're, you know, we're in it. Um, That was important. And he's telling us that story today. You can go see that cave painting and you, you know that guy's deal so what we what art's role is is to be the interlocutor to connect us all together and that isn't what we do with with po- popular culture with music and 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 television what we do is we amuse people we we don't make them think we don't challenge them we 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 distract them for long enough so that they come home from work they have a little bit of distraction. They go to bed at night and they get up in the morning and they go serve their corporate master again the next day. <laughs> so this way the machine keeps working. It's the industrial um, nature. Of, of, and I'm part of it. I'm part of the amusement industry. (laughs) I'm, I'm in there. I'm a cog in the machine. But I think that's, I think that's what's going on. You know, real art is designed to provoke you and make you think and help you understand the world around you and help you understand yourself and help, help you understand, help us understand each other. And I don't think uh, um, popular music does that. And I don't think that, you know, retro bebop does that. Recycling old jazz from the 1940s doesn't do that. It's just recycling old jazz from the 1940s. <laughs> you know, there, there's good art out there and there's good, good uh, music and there's good, you know, creative stuff that's going on. But it's, it's not at the forefront of, of uh, what we do. And I, I don't know that it ever would be. You know, (laughs) (laughs) But it
0: used to seem to be that it was easier to find – like films used to be more challenging. Like I had a conversation this morning where it's like – my friend equates it somehow with post 9-11. But it was like – because we both saw Wes Anderson's new movie and I'm just like this is kind of like a – as vapid as a superhero movie just fobbed off as art because it's very gimmicks and and people are going to fucking hate me for saying that because people love him. But it's like there's no substance. There's no emotional depth to it. And I'm like – why is this generation so obsessed with stuff that's not that doesn't have any emotional depth mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and he, i don't know it's it, like people like things embrace things that are bad and then there's like an irony up to and it's like it's perplexing to me that we and i'm like where did this do you have a, any idea where we went off the
1: rails on this shit <laughs> good good question you know it's uh, being being an old uh uh an old marxist you know you you got to put a lot of it at the feet of the misplaced priorities of capitalism you know that uh, that we put profit ahead of everything that profit goes ahead of people so uh, but you're right it's uh, it's a it's a good question i mean how did we get in this mess
0: <laughs> i don't see us getting out of it is what also terrifies me yeah uh,
1: I- well, it in a lot of ways it, you know, it's not our problem.
0: <laughs> Good, I'll take that.
1: <laughs> we're we're too old now. It's young people's problem. It's my son's problem. <laughs> it's 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 your children's problem in the future. Uh, yeah, they're I, the ones that are going to take over the, you know, 100 years all new people. So, we're going next ones are coming up. Yeah, it's going I've, to be there. Probably. I
0: feel like I'm, it, the one thing that's going to be well-timed in my life is that I'll cut out before, like, all the natural resources are gone. Like, I'll, I'll miss that bullet. <laughs> so I can still take as long as showers as I want. <laughs> <laughs> but do you still <laughs> consider yourself a Marxist?
1: Well, yeah, you know, fundamentally, you know, Marx was right about a great deal. Um, um, he didn't. There was no way for him to, to foresee that the Re- the Marxist revolution would also have a goon squad, you know, that death squads would come with the revolution, but only for a little while, just till we take care of our enemies. Except every revolution comes with death squads, you know, <laughs> that, that take care of the enemies of the revolution. So, you know, in the end, Chairman Chairman Mao ended up, The Red Guard killed 30 million of his own Chinese countrymen. I mean, that's horrific on any scale (laughs) imaginable. Um, So, you know, the Soviet Union collapsed due to lack of spare parts. Uh, You know, they they had no money, they had no gas, and then the oligarchs stole the whole country. Um, So there are aspects of Marxism that actually didn't work. <laughs> um, not unlike there being aspects of capitalism that actually don't work. I mean, Detroit is the prime example of uh, capitalism run amuck. that uh, the big three automakers got by for four generations, building first good quality products that got worse and worse. And they got, as they got more imperious in their, success in their wealth and power they made crappier and crappier cars <laughs> and then one day the arabs decided to charge 60 dollars a barrel for oil instead of the 20 we had been paying and your detroit gas guzzler was all of a sudden obsolete because the germans and the koreans and the japanese came up with cars that could get 40 miles to the gallon yeah <laughs> yeah some people uh, and, and are... the city went in the toilet in the process
0: do you think there's going to be a, cause I have some art friends who think that Detroit is going to become like the next arts because it's so inexpensive. Do you, is there going to be somewhat of a resurgence in that area in Detroit? Do you think?
1: Sounds good to me. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, listen, I support anything that'll, that'll revitalize uh, my hometown. I mean, it's just so fucking heartbreaking to go. I go back a few times a year and, and do what i can to to uh jump start things you know it's like katrina level destruction i mean there's you know tens of thousands of homes that are gone they're gone they're flattened there's neighborhoods that are being taken over by underbrush now i mean it's it's when i grew up there there was about a million and a half people in the city of detroit and another 2 million in the suburbs it was a thriving manufacturing center fourth largest city in america and today there's less than 700,000 and it's a disaster it takes an hour for the police to arrive
0: that's yeah do you feel like it's getting that it's getting the media attention that it deserves and um, because it's such a like you said katrina level disaster and it's like you don't you hear bits about it, but it's, it seems like it should be a main, bigger yeah. point of focus.
1: Yeah, it, it, should, it, should be, it should be high on the list of subjects in our national discourse. I mean, in, in terms of big problems, <laughs> big things to address, you know, you know what, uh, what Rand Paul says means nothing. You know, what happens to the city of Detroit means a lot.
0: It's, yeah, it's heartbreak. It's, I don't know.
1: It's frustrating. It's infuriating too.
0: It's funny because there's a Bing Crosby movie where he was like, yeah, we're going to summer in Detroit. It's like, I mean, it <laughs> used to be, it's like now you've, no one would want a summer in Detroit. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but I, I saw that like a couple of years ago. I was like, God, like what a major turn that that was like a place people would spend the entire summer. Oh,
1: it was great. Growing up there was, it was spectacular. I mean, you know. The The state motto is, if you seek a pleasant peninsula, look about you. It's the land, you know, there's lakes everywhere, There's parks, you know, I mean, everybody spent the summers out in the country and uh, swimming and boating and, you know, the river. And, yeah, it was rocking when I was a kid.
0: And there's beautiful architecture there. I don't think people like, it's very art deco, a lot of art. Yeah, it's heart wrenching. And I don't know if this is a question for on or off, but I saw... Did you see the documentary Waiting for Sugar Man, the whole Rodriguez thing? Because yes. I saw an album with a sticker that said, Used to Jam with the MC5. And I was like,
1: is that true? <laughs> Not that I remember. <laughs> I remember almost everything. And especially from that era, I remember almost everything. And I don't... Re- now... Sinclair, John Sinclair, my dear friend and and the MC Five's manager, um, ran into him, and he John remembered him, and they apparently had been friends all along, and uh, and uh, in fact, Rodriguez got John to open for him on some concert dates really? in Europe. Yeah, at some festivals.
0: Oh, that's really cool.
1: John was thrilled about yeah, and I, and I was too. I think it's a really brotherly thing to do, you know. Great story, Rodriguez.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it is.
1: But what I want to know is about his women. The, the women thing didn't really come out in the movie. They kind of soft-pedaled all that. Because the daughters, I don't know, my guess is they look like they all got different moms. But they're all, like, well-educated and well-spoken and well-groomed. So I'm like... What's the deal with the with the wives and all that?
0: Yeah, know? one of his daughters is like was like one of the first. I don't know. She was like real cutting edge in the air force and wrote all these like science books and stuff.
1: Is that right? Yeah, but fantastic that <laughs> makes, makes the story even better.
0: <laughs> and uh, to get back to music, just for a little bit though, do you feel like there's anything going on? I mean, I know you're a big fan of uh, Ken Vandermark, is it? Because I do feel like there's a lack of. What we've talked about, like emotion and in music or politics or even saying something, yeah. is there anything that strikes you these days that like you're like, oh fuck, somebody's bringing it back? Or,
1: well, I mean, Ken's work is is at the top of the list. I mean, he's re- he really knows his audience, and and his website is brilliant, and uh, and his, you know his work is. I mean, he's the real deal. I mean, he's he's a, a hardworking professional. Artist, um, uh, there's a, I hear a few things. You know the new um, what's her name uh, Regina Carter. Mm-hmm. I think he's, he's in fact another here. Detroit musician. She's mm-hmm. she's a violinist, and she's got a fucking killer band. And she always comes up with really pow- powerfully emotional stuff. Her new record. I think it's called Southern Comfort, and it's she did this journey into her ancestors and the music of her, of the South. But these guys, you know, the people in her band are all like her husband um, is a tr- tremendous uh, drummer, and uh, so it's it's really done well. It's just it's the things that we're looking for in music, you know. It has soul. It has heart, you know. There's emotion to it. There's feeling in it. It's real musicians playing in real time. There's a few other things around. Um, I think um, there's more exciting music happening outside of American pop music these days. American pop music is so formulaic and, and predictable that uh, that who cares, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... Every now and then I hear a a, a slick production, you know, somebody that really knows what they're doing in the studio. And I appreciate that. I, and I try to learn from it, but I I don't give a damn what my Miley Cyrus does or any of them, you know, they're all, who gives a shit? (laughs) But I, but I hear stuff like, um, and, and I can't, I I won't even try to pronounce this artist's name, Basuku. He's, a, he's a mala- from Mali. My friend, um, my fellow film composer, Joe LaDuca, invited me to go see him at Royce Hall. He's from Mali, and he plays a thing. They kind of call it the African banjo. And it's like a gourd with a couple strings on it. Looks like it's from, you know, 2000 B.C. <laughs> and um, it's electric. He could put a pickup on it. And then his band is his family. His wife is the singer. His brother actually plays the, the, the instrument better than he does. And then his son is the bass player. And his other son is the drummer. And his nephew is the percussionist. And they, they wear traditional African um, party clothes, you know, these ga- colorful gowns. And, they man, they, they rock so hard. And the audience just went crazy. I mean, they played their asses off. That's exciting to me, you know. I mean, he had a wah wah pedal. <laughs> he was excited, you know, like he'd walk up to his wah wah pedal and he'd, "Yeah, check me out," you know. <laughs> oh, no, 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 I said, "Yeah, you go, bro." That, that's just that kind of stuff, you know. There's this band from Brooklyn called um, Dirty Projectors that I'm a big fan of because mm-hmm. they they're pushing it, you know, and and they got the chops to back it up. Um, there isn't a lot out there that I hear and I'm, I'm listening. I'm I'm looking.
0: <laughs> yeah. I was, that's what I was thinking of. Like, I was in new Orleans for a day recently and I saw a bunch of like a band of 20 somethings playing like music from the twenties and thirties. And I'm like, I was like, are people going backward to look for music? Because nothing has, yeah. like you said, soul or emotion anymore. And I'm like, th- I feel like that the younger people don't know where to find or create. So they are, I don't know if it's regressing, but they're going to the past to find stuff with
1: well depth. In, a, in a way that's kind of how the process works i mean you gotta you gotta learn the fundamentals so if they go back and they study um you know the brass bands in New Orleans and they learn how what syncopation means and what a second line beat is, and then they can then they i mean that that's kind of the way i do it i I kind of look at it like it's a bow and an arrow, and the power when you pull back on the bow is in the past and music from the past things that inspired me in the past and then i can let it let the arrow fly but using that power from the past to shoot me into the future
0: that's a great analogy
1: <laughs> I, i'm trying and uh to totally switch
0: gears and head towards uh jail guitar doors sure. which we talked about 2 years sure, ago
1: sure, sure
0: and uh i know there were i believe last year there was two laws two different laws passed in the state of California that i was curious what you thought because if i'm not mistaken jerry brown they were trying to change the the sentencing for drug mm-hmm. offenses which I, he passed on but then he also like for more corporate funding of prisons he okayed and I thought, boy, those are both really bad things for your cause mm-hmm. in a way. And I was mm-hmm. just curious what you, your thoughts on that those issues were.
1: Well, the governor is is um, playing it too close to the vest. He's he's unafraid. He's he's afraid to take a stand on the issue. You know, uh, to be to be fair, to be. To to be realistic, there is a part of the human psyche that wants to punish people. They want to see people suffer. And I don't get it. (laughs) And I think it's really disturbing. And it's really, um, I don't know, comes from some deep, dark place in our ancient history. But they think that, you know, if you did wrong, you should suffer and and sending people to prison and depriving them of their liberty isn't enough they want them to they want them to stay in prison for life forever without the possibility of parole um and then they congratulate themselves on being good liberals and uh, you know being an anti death penalty um and so to govern a guy like Jerry Brown has has to govern from the center or the center right on this issue. Um, it's going to be interesting as time moves on here because the right and the far right, the hard right, are joining our campaign really? to end mass incarceration in America. They have their own reasons that it's government overreach, that uh, it's too expensive, it's big government to the max, um, that that um, we're not getting enough bang for our buck. Um, you know, the left looks at it from the, the liberal humanitarian point of view, you know, that these are human beings and that um, we should actually be trying to help people change for the better, whatever their problem was it got so bad that they ended up in prison, maybe we should help them take a look at that and do what whatever we can do if it's job training or, or drug and alcohol treatment or uh, psychological uh, counseling or therapy or medication or, or education. Um, so the governor, you know, he's, he's, he's being very crafty. He's sidestepped the, the federal court's order to reduce the prison population by instituting his realignment um, policy where he takes uh, lower level offenders, nonviolent offenders, uh, people with shorter sentences to serve, out of the state prison system and assigns them to county jails. Um this is whack-a-mole. This is you push it down over here, it comes up over there. Until the sentencing laws are reformed so that nonviolent economic drug crimes do not send people to prison. Because prison should be the last place we put someone. That should be the last resort, not the go-to concept. We have people that are first time offenders serving decades for nonviolent economic crimes dealing drugs um, until we approach until we change the drug laws until we change the sentencing laws until ju- judges are given back the discretion to make a decision based on a case by case basis i mean that's what, a judge is, that's what a judge does. He judges you. <laughs> he gets all your information, and he makes a decision about what should happen to you. Like in my case, the judge, you know, they do, a, they do an intensive pre-sentencing report. They find out who you are, what's your story, how'd you get in trouble, what's going on with you, and then the judge makes the decision as to what is justice, how do you balance society's right to be protected from people that break the social contract with what's in your own best interest. In my case, he he had the discretion to give me, I was indicted on 16 counts that carried 15 years each. He could have given me all those. (laughs) That was his choice. Or he could have given me nothing. He gave me four years. At the time, I was Pretty disappointed. <laughs> I was, I was uh, rocked pretty hard. I thought, God damn, four, God, four years, Jesus. Well, since then, that was in the 1970s, you know. Since then, these mandatory drug laws have come into effect. And my same offense carries a life sentence. So there are people doing life in the federal prison system today for the exact same offense that I was convicted of. And I got a four-year prison term. Of which I, I did over over half of it. But still, the, po- the point is, until the laws change so judges can make the decisions, till the police stop arresting people for nonviolent economic crimes, um, we're going to have this uh, problem of hyper-incarceration.
0: Do, do you see – is there change coming that way for, for with the sentencing of judges? Like you said uh... – to return that it would be beneficial if we could return to that is there hope that that it's going back that way or is there
1: there's more than hope um on my last trip to washington i met with um senator grassley's uh, i think it was grassley um staff there were three senators on the judiciary committee who are all working to undo these bad laws on the federal level um you know, there's two things going on. There's the federal and the state. Um, what, how we got in this trouble is the federal laws got very severe very quickly, and the states all followed suit. Now the states are starting to roll back these laws, and the feds are lagging behind. So what I'm telling them is, okay, you guys go ahead and take care of what you can take care of. They're saying they can't influence the states. It's a states' rights issue fair enough then just fix the federal system first and then let the states catch up again you know somebody's got to step forward these laws these these mandatory minimums and these three strikes laws and and these LWAP sentences life without the possibility of parole these laws are very easy to pass they were they were a breeze to get passed um all you do is is stir up some fear in the electorate and you parade out a couple crime victims families And they put them on the local news, and everybody says, oh, geez, this is terrible. Um, We need to do something about it. And so they pass these unbelievably severe sentencing laws, and we end up where we are. Um, It's easy to pass them. It's very hard to undo them. Um, But to answer your question, yes, there is movement in the Congress to undo them, to um, reduce the disparity in sentencing, uh, to um, return discretion to the judges, um, to to come up with a, you know a, a, a policy, social policy that makes sense. I mean, what we're doing is incoherent, <laughs> it's it and it's unsustainable. We have over 10 million Americans under direct state control, parole, probation, or 2.3 million in prison facilities which are unbelievably expensive. <laughs> I mean <laughs> when I went down the ch- it, it cost them $50,000 a year to keep a federal prisoner in prison. I said, "Well, just give me the money. I'll go home and uh, you know, we'll call it even. <laughs> I won't get in any more trouble. Just give me the give me the 50,000." I mean, you could you could spend that on college education and get a way better Result. In fact, the best the best guarantee to to not come back to prison is a college degree.
0: <laughs> Do you think the corporatization of the prison system is is that making the situation worse or? Because sometimes you hear paranoia of like, oh, it all becomes profit, and they don't want to release people because they're working in a. F- factory. I don't know if those... You know, because they production now in prisons, and it's like, is that... I mean, that sounds almost far-fetched of a theory, but...
1: No, it's not far-fetched at all. You're dead on the money. We're back to the ugly, misplaced priorities of capitalism. <laughs> if, if there's profit in locking people up, and profit comes before people, then... You, I mean, this is, this is what we're facing, and I, I think it's, a, it's just a disaster. I think it's an international embarrassment and it's a national disgrace that we have businesses that um, are, are designed to lock people up. That's, that's the, the state's business. <laughs> the state's business is running the army, running the police, running the fire department, running the mail. I mean, you can't outsource all this stuff, you know. I mean, this is what happened to the military. You know, in the military, part of being in the military was getting kitchen patrol. You know, you go peel potatoes. Well, we don't have kitchen patrol anymore. We we job it out to Halliburton. So Dick Cheney makes another trillion dollars. American corporate entities cash in these are things the government used to do and didn't do badly and it seems to me that's the, the realm that government should function in you know the the infrastructure of the society how the police operate how the courts operate how hospitals operate the, these things should be regulated by the government
0: is there also because we were talking about drug offenses and is there Becoming more awareness, because like you said, you the reason you went to prison. Or you, we talked about this the first time you were on the show. Of you were an addict, and you were doing what an addict does. To you know, you broke the law to to get your what you needed. Is there? And be, I feel like I don't I, uh, like Philip Seymour Hoffman when he passed away. People were like, oh, it was a selfish act. He wasn't thinking of his kids. And it's like there's a misconception in our society of what it means to be. An addict, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and is the are, is there becoming more awareness of that at least within sort of the prison system and how to handle these situations, or is it staying the same?
1: No, I I, I think um, our general knowledge of addiction is improving, um, at least to the degree that we can admit we only know a little that it's very very complex. It's it's a very um tenacious chronic mental disorder that that it's a, a brain chemistry issue which could be um nature and it could be nurture um you know we know addicts take whatever it is they take or do whatever they do um because they like the effect of that activity if it's snorting heroin or workaholism um, what you know if we define addiction as behaviors that that contribute to making your life unmanageable um, damaging behavior um, so you know what is it in in one's brain chemistry that that they need to change their mood with a glass of vodka or a snort of cocaine? Good question. You know, I mean, this is gonna this is gonna take. We have some strategies that are pretty effective. Um, you know, it's it's a hard thing to quantify because, for example, in in the re- recovery community, in the twelve step community, there's no records kept. You know, people that come to AA, nobody signs in or signs out. There's no follow up. It's all volunteer, and so it's hard to know. You know how what's what's truly effective we know that that uh most people that come to twelve step groups don't stay and don't stay sober, but we only know that based on how many people do stay and it's a small percentage, maybe five percent uh you know that stay at the meetings that continue to come for the rest of their lives I'm inclined to think a lot of people come because they're in trouble. They find out what's wrong with them. They find out what to do about it. They do that, and then they go away. They go back and live their lives. Do they ever drink again or use again? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. It's it's hard to say. I just know that it's a small percentage of people that come and stay and, and adhere, you know, uh, you know, adhere to the, to the zero tolerance concept of taking nothing uh, that affects you from the neck up, (laughs) as, as we say. Um, And, you know, even in, in AA and NA, you know, our literature says we only know a little. And I, I think that's important to keep in mind, you know, this is a really complex problem addiction. A guy like Philip Seymour Hoffman, I mean, okay, here's a guy, Who was in trouble, you know, knew that he liked to get too high, really wanted to do something with his life, came to AA, liked what he heard, did what was suggested, put together a, by all measures, pretty spectacular life. You know, beautiful family, economic security, the respect of his peers, his coworkers. I mean, he, he was one of our greatest living actors of our generation. But still underneath it all, deeply, deeply troubled cat, you know, deeply insecure, deeply, you know, fearful, a lot of a lot of inside shit going on with the guy. And and um, so it begs the question, you know, like what happened? You know, he had it all going on and then, you know, he, he dabbled and then he. Then he more than dabbled. Then he even more than more than more than dabbled. And then he just went wild, and maybe he decided to destroy himself. I, I'm inclined to to go with that theory rather than an accidental overdose. You know, he knew what he knew. He knows what drugs are. People that use drugs, we know what we know what drugs do. We know the potential. You know how much you're putting in that spoon you know, you know, you know how many pills you're taking, you know how much liquor you drank. And I think, I think that he just couldn't live in the day he was in one more day. And he just decided to leave. I mean, that's my, my personal take on it. I don't, I mean, accidental overdoses happen all the time. People get that, you know, you get a bag of dope with fentanyl in it or or you come out of jail and you're going to do the six bags that you were doing before you went to jail and you do the six and you ain't ready to do six. and <laughs> You know, the, the, uh, the Sid Vicious problem, you know, is come out. Yeah. I, I was doing three bags when I went in, I'll do three bags now. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's uh, yeah, it's,
1: it's complex. It's a, it's a complex business. I do think that there's more, there's help available. Um, that's the good news, and that, and we're talking about it here. You know, we never talked about this kind of stuff in the '60s or '70s. This, this wasn't even a subject of conversation. The fact that we're talking about it today on your show, and people are listening to it, and you know, believe me, they're talking about it with their friends because we all know people that get too high and drink too much and get too loaded, and and we'd all like to see them do better. Uh, it's just very very complicated you know it's i mean we have some ideas you know 12 steps aren't bad and uh, i think they they can be very effective uh, uh really i mean save my ass but you know time goes on and things change and and those issues that were there in the beginning they're still down in there and the more you peel that onion back you start to really find out like man Who the hell am I? (laughs) What the hell's going on here? Um,
0: And just, we're near the end, but I just want to ask, because I'm trying to find a way to ask it, but how, without being cheesy, but now that you're a father, (laughs) it's like, uh, how does that feel? I know that's, I feel like that's the lamest way to ask it, (laughs) but it's like, you've had such a huge life with a lot of variety <laughs> and now
1: I've led many lives
0: yes. <laughs> I mean it's as a guy who's like sort of on the threshold of considering of that element in my life it's like god like you can't fathom it and then for you to be in it like it's got to be mind blowing
1: it's the coolest thing I ever did it's it's so profoundly moving you know and i knew before my son arrived that that there had to be something to this that you can't know until you're doing it you know it's like doing time <laughs> it's like being in the military you know like the marines you know well i'm not going to talk if you're not a marine i can't talk to you you know but fathers and parents you know there's some I and mean, listen we've been making kids for a while here <laughs> On Earth. <laughs> and, uh, <coughs> there's some, there's some attraction to it. We're, we're, we're wired in such a way as, as to need to do this. To, the species is more than flourishing. The species is killing itself with its, with a, you know, we're, we've overrun the planet with our species. It's, it's our, it's going to be our, our undoing, you know, that we're so good at making babies. <laughs> but, uh, you know, to go from the the macro to the micro and and talk about the experience of it for me is he he I mean a you're responsible you know if I don't do my job this kid'll die <laughs> <laughs> he can't no make off. it he can't make it on his own <laughs> he's screwed you know an alligator plops out is born. He's good to go. He can go eat something and swim and he's ready to survive in the world. If nobody eats him first, he he can make it. You know, a a camel, a horse can plop out and start running and he's good to go. Humans, we ain't worth a shit when we come out. (laughs) We can't do anything. Can't go anywhere. We can't get our needs met. So parents have to do it. and. And, and then to watch, watch this kid emerge, you know, who he, cause he's his own guy. I mean, you know, I'm his father, but he's himself and, you know, the great, uh, Khalil Gibran, uh, uh, your, your children are not your children. Um, they are lo- life's longing for itself. You know, they he belongs to himself and, um, so just to, like, figure out, you know, who is he and how can I help him, you know, while he still needs help, you know, because in a minute he's not going to need it anymore and he's going to be off on his own. But right now he does. And, you know, he knows no cynicism. He he doesn't know the evil in that men keep in their hearts, you know. He doesn't know the harm that goes on in the world. He's just... When he feels something, he feels it full measures, I mean he's to the max, you know he he screams with delight <laughs> I mean, God damn <laughs> kills me, and then you know when he hurts, he hurts full measures if he he falls down, he's trying to do something, he falls, he hits his head, he cries, you know, my job ain't to tell him it's okay. Nothing, you're all right. He ain't all right. He just cracked his head, you know. <laughs> let him have his feelings. Let him cry. And let him know that, uh, you know, I'm here and it's all good. And he'll cry it out and then he'll he's he's good again. It's, man, Matt, I don't know. I'm still a, a, a novice at this stuff, you know. <laughs> so it's only been, it hasn't even been a year yet. and But I'm telling you, it's the coolest thing I've ever done. I, I love this kid so much, it's ridiculous and and. He's just, he's just, um, he's, he's uh, kind of plugging me back into, because, you know, you tend to get a little crusty in this life. <laughs> tend to get a little, uh, <laughs> oh, 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 these motherfuckers, ah, fuck this shit. That ah, <laughs> was then, me this morning. And then there's this little boy who's just beaming with joy to see you that day. And you can go up, you know, I told him. I'm not afraid of you. I could take you in a fight. And I told him, too. I said, you know what? Tickling is fair in a fight. I could tickle you, and I could, I could throw you into a pillow. He's not impressed. I don't scare him. Uh,
0: thank you so much. Your album comes out in, on Record Store Day, April 19th. Yes, sir. Correct? I'm looking at that. And it's called Lexington?
1: Lexington. Yes. Yeah, see and it's my my old Kentucky home. I didn't know you were
0: wait, wait, are you from
1: Kentucky? No, that's where Lexington is.
0: Oh, that I knew. Yeah. I just the way you said it I thought maybe you were from there. I'd... No,
1: that's that was my my federal fortress on Leestown Pike.
0: I did not know that.
1: Yes, FCI Lexington, Federal Correctional Institution at Lexington, it's called. So, it seemed to The the, uh, idea of doing this record seemed to tie everything together for me, you know, from doing my time there, the fact that the institution used to be the United States Public Health Service Narcotics Farm, where all the jazz musicians went to take the cure in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, where I went to serve my time after the federal prison system took it over, um and my love of free jazz and then to tie it into where we are today with mass incarceration and and the drug war the greatest failure of social policy in america's history um all just seem to make some kind of sense to me so try to pack in a lot of content in there yeah
0: i think you succeeded thank you very much wayne thank you Thank you very much for listening to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. If you enjoyed the show, please do me a favor and go to the uh, page we have at FeralAudio.com and you could donate some money if you like. It helps us keep on our lights and keeps the show website going and uh, helps us pay for gas and things. Also, if you can't afford to uh, donate money, I understand, you could use our Amazon link and the next time you buy some books or movies or shoes... You go through the Amazon link, and I get a kickback of that money, and that helps us out a great deal. You get to buy some stuff, I get a little kickback, we're all happy. Also, you could write a review for my show on, uh, on iTunes, I would really appreciate that, give me five stars, uh, do that, that helps me out a lot. Follow me on Twitter, Matt underscore Dwyer, and uh, support live podcasting, especially at Feral Audio, it is greatly appreciated. Thank you.